Father, we give you thanks for this time that we have together. We ask that you would help us to be uh, to concentrate and to hear your word. We pray that you give us soft hearts to receive your word. We pray that you would make yourself shine, that we would see you more clearly, to know you more deeply. We pray that you would be the treasure this morning. We love you, God. We thank you so much for what you've done for us and all that you are for us. We praise you that we can say that we are your people and that you are our God. And so we come and listen to you this morning with attentive ears. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's no doubt, I'm sure you'll agree, that relationships are important in our culture. Am I right? Uh, I did wonder if... Um, I'm gonna t- this is going to be about relationships. And I remember when I spoke about the text on husbands and wives. And even in preparing, I could almost feel everybody on the edge of their seats. This is going to be one to listen in on because he's going to be talking about this relationship, how these two people relate to one another. Right? We know that that's an important relationship and we listen in and we want to know the terms of the relationship. How does this work? If we look outside, we see social media tells us relationships are everything. Facebook, Snapchat, etc., etc. TV channels, registered with 4OD the other night. I think it was a waste of 15 minutes. Full of TV programs about relationships. Made in Chelsea. Seems to be about relationships. (laughs) And a never-ending list of dating programs and other made-in-Chelsea-ish programs. But it's not just those type of relationships either, is it? It's all of our relationships. In the workplace, what's my relationship like with my boss? With my colleagues? With my friends? With family? Is it going well? Is it not going well? What are the terms? That group. How, what, how do I fit and what are these relationships? It's not just that there are lots of different relationships and that relationships are important. I've mentioned it a couple of times, but the terms of the relationship matter as well. There are different types of terms. Our work relationship is more contractual. It's you do this, you get paid that. I did this, you pay me that. Marriage relationship is different. It's more covenantal. Mixing the two doesn't work quite so well. Can't relate to your spouse in the same way. Think perhaps of a hockey team. You, being a part of the hockey team, there's a, your skill level is like this, therefore you are in the team. You enjoy the blessings and the benefits of the team winning a medal because your skill level was at this height and you were a part of the team, you receive the blessings. If they lose, you suffer the consequences with the team, right? 
But if your skill level is not there, you're not a part of the team. You, there may have been the case that you were a part of the Olympic team, but your skill level dropped, you're no longer a part of the team, they go on and win, you didn't win. Because that relationship, the way that it functioned was that you had to meet a certain criteria to remain in that relationship with that team and enjoy the blessings of that team. So the point here I'm making is that there are different relationships and the terms of the relationships matter. Now, the most important relationship that all of us have is our relationship with God. And it pays us to think about what are the terms of this relationship? How does this relationship function? It's easy for us just to think, oh, we just have a relationship with God. Or to kick into a default and we just start functioning and relating to God in perhaps ways that we relate to other people. But if we stop to think, what, are, what is our relationship with God like? What are the terms of this relationship? How does it work? Now just hold that thought. We're going to come back to that. We're going to go the long way around. We're going to look at this text here before us. And in doing so, we're going to look at it in three movements. There's three movements in the passage that we have before us this morning. First, there's the all-important context in verse 17 to 19. Then there's a scene of betrayal. And then there are some symbols. So first of all, the all-important context. This is verse 17 to 19. Look with me. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. Now, in this particular book of the Bible, the good news according to Matthew, we are in chapter 26. You'll see the big number 26 there in your Bible. We're towards the end of Matthew's account. Jesus is on his way towards Jerusalem and he's already told his disciples four times at this point in the narrative that his death is impending. He's going to Jerusalem and just look at uh, chapter 26 verse 2. Uh, Lewis mentioned this last week uh, and this is just a repeat of what Jesus has already told them three other times. Verse 2, as you know the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. That's the context. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's told them he's going there to die. And now we have the focus on the Passover. Note the repetition. Look in verse 17. Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat? The Passover. Then again in verse 18, I'm going to celebrate the Passover. And then finally, in the end of verse 19, so the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. Matthew wants us to know that what's happening and what's going to happen now in this meal that Jesus eats with his disciples happens at the context of Passover. 
So what is Passover? Now, for this one, we have to travel back in time. So, wind the clock back, all the way back to the time when the descendants of Abraham are a nation as living as slaves in the land of Egypt. God raises up uh, a leader, Moses, and he says to Moses, look, I want you to go, to go to the ruler of Egypt and I want you to tell him, let my people go. They're going to come out of Egypt, they're going to go into the wilderness and they're going to worship me. The ruler of Egypt stubbornly refuses and after a series of uh, warnings and judgments, God finally threatens a final judgment. God says through Moses to the ruler of Egypt, I'm going to kill the firstborn of every living beast and person in Egypt tonight. But God also says to Moses, this is what you, the people of Israel, are to do. You're to take a lamb, you are to kill it on the evening of the 14th of this month. You're to take some of the blood, put it on the doorposts of your house, then get all your family in the house, eat the lamb, and this night I'm going to pass over Egypt and every house in which there's blood on the doorposts, I'm going to pass over and the firstborn in that house will be safe. And so it happens. God is faithful to his word, as he always is, and he passes over Egypt that night, and all the firstborn in Egypt die. Except for those for whom there's blood on the doorpost, every family in those houses, who were in their houses that night, are preserved. And so what happens is God says to the Israelites, that this event, you are to repeat this event every year. Because what happens is that night, the ruler of Egypt says, right, out, you can go. He finally lets the people of Israel go and they leave Egypt. And so every year, this festival is celebrated by the Israelites to remember that occasion. Now, here's a question. <clears throat> When we come to Matthew, why is this the chosen festival? Why is this the context? Why does Jesus choose Passover as the point when he goes to die? He could have chose, it could have been the case that he chose another point in the year. There were other festivals. There were other sacrifices. There was the Day of Atonement. That would have been a good one. The day when the priest goes into the most holy place uh, in the temple. He makes a uh, sacrifice for the covering of the sins of the people of Israel. That perhaps would have been a good choice. And there are a series of other sacrifices. Here's why I think Passover is chosen. I think Passover is chosen as the night because the Passover is a bit like the Swiss army knife of festivals. It's got a whole bunch of things that it captures within it. It captures... The, it, it's got sacrifice built into it, so there's a sacrifice, and so the other sacrifices have that as well. But there's also the deliverance from slavery, which the Bible will teach us later that 
our real slavery is slavery to sin. The Passover festival also speaks of protection from God's judgment. The Passover is a display of God's power. He says, I will bring you out with a mighty hand. The Passover is a moment that recalls God's triumph over his enemies and triumph over the false gods. The Passover is a moment of God's faithfulness to his promises. God had promised hundreds of years before to Abraham that his descendants would be in the land of Egypt, they would be there for roughly 400 years, and that he would bring them out of that country. God is, the Passover moment is a moment of God's faithfulness. The Passover is also a moment where, at some level, it's the formation of a nation. They come out of Egypt, and they go into the wilderness, and they, and they are, uh, God meets with them there, and that's where their nation is constituted, as it, as it were. There's a sense in which that happens there. Therefore, the Passover is a loaded event in Israel's history. <clears throat> now, back then, what happened was Israel was brought out. They, the Lord brings Israel to himself. But something else needed to be spoken about first. We need to talk about something else first. And just as then, so is now, sin. And so this moves us into the next section of Matthew here with a betrayal. You see, Jesus sits down to eat this meal with the disciples. But before he does, oh, sorry, while he's having this meal, and before he moves into these, uh, this symbolic act that he does, look what we have here in verses 20 through to 25. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve, and while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> note the word betrayal. You will have spotted there, it came up a few times. Jesus is about to be betrayed by a close friend. But here's a question in the Gospel of Matthew. Who really hands Jesus over? Who's actually responsible for his death? If we look in chapter 20, verse 18 to 19... If you're able to flick back there very quickly. <clears throat> this is what it says. Jesus says, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. That's what Judas does, isn't it? He delivers Jesus over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Now, anybody can do this. You can go online and you can look at your concordance and you can find out what, the, what word is being used and you can find out where, it's, where it occurs in Matthew and you can see that it's the same word that's being used in chapter 26 
speaking of Judas, betraying Jesus. You see, Judas hands Jesus over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And then look what it says. They will condemn him to death, verse 19, and will hand him over to the Gentiles. So Judas hands over to the chief priests. The chief priests hand over to the Gentiles, represented by Pilate here and the soldiers. And he will be handed over to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. So who hands Jesus over? It looks like everybody hands Jesus over. Now, why does that matter? I think it's instructive for us because, you see, when the Bible talks about Jews and Gentiles, or the chief priests, the leaders, represented by the leaders and by Pilate and the soldiers, it's talking about everybody. John makes this clear in his gospel when when he uses the term world. He says in John 3, 19, light has come into the world, but the people loved darkness. Light has come into the world. Jesus comes to the world, and it's the world and the Jews. And that's just, it's just a way of, rather than spelling out everybody, it's a way of saying everybody. Everybody handed Jesus over. Humans, by nature, are rebels. We are coups. Everybody wants to wash their hands of Jesus and pass him on to someone else for their own little treasure. Do we do that? For Judas, he passes him on for money. For the Jewish leaders, they pass him on for glory, protecting their own status. For Pilate, passes him on for safety and for ease. Do any of those ring true in our lives? Money, glory, safety and ease. Either use Jesus for this or get him out of the way for this. So what we have right here, just before we come to this special moment in this meal, we have this heightening of the darkness of sin. A close friend betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Oh, the depths of our depravity. Feel that. This is God the Son incarnate. He comes to the world. People sometimes say, people just need to know and see that Jesus is who he is. No, they don't. Here's what we do with Jesus. We kill him. When God comes to the world, we say, die, Jesus. Do we get that? That is what we are like as people. We kill God. But it also shows the loveliness of Jesus. Jesus knows he's about to be betrayed. He knows 
that he's going to the cross and he's going to be crucified. He knows the story of the number of people right through Bible history who have been hung on a pole. The cursed hangs on a pole. He's lived under the Roman Empire. He's seen people hang on a pole. He knows where he's going. And he's doing it for these people who are handing him over. He's doing it for you. He moves towards his enemies. What love right there in a meal. What courage. I would run away. What grace. Do these people deserve this? Does anybody deserve Jesus to go to the cross like this? Who of us could say, yeah, that would be right for Jesus to go to the cross for me? What pain he must have been experiencing in that moment. And look what's next with these symbols as he holds out the bread and he breaks the bread and he knows this is my body look at it broken look at this wine poured out that's going to be my blood who is this God and so now we move to these symbols in verse 26 through 28 while they were eating this is the second scene at this meal Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying take and eat this is my body Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. You see, we know that Jesus' death is coming, and what Jesus does here with these two elements is he interprets in advance the death that is coming. He interprets... What is about to happen the next day with these symbols? He's saying, there's a thing going to happen tomorrow and this is, I'm telling you now what what that thing's going to be. What's going to happen? And it's interesting, he says, you see, Matthew's already shown that Jesus is the new Israel. Jesus is like the new Moses. But you see, what happened was when the Israelites left Egypt, they went out of Egypt into the wilderness and they entered into a covenant. And so here we are, we've come, we've come full circle, we're coming back to relationship now. You see, they came out of Egypt, they came into a covenant. And that covenant that they entered into was a do this and live covenant. It was an obedience equals blessing covenant. It was a disobedience equals curse covenant. It had these legal contours. You see, you don't just have a relationship with God. 
the relationship has got terms. And so, so after years of failure on behalf of the Israelites to keep these terms and to maintain this relationship, after God sends prophet after prophet and shows grace and mercy after mercy, Eventually, in Jeremiah, one of the prophets, after the, Isra- after the Israelites have been sent into exile, they've totally, they've, they've, they've done it. They've disobeyed for centuries. But God makes a promise through one of his prophets, Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 31, 31. And I think that it's alluded to here in these verses. And I'll just flick back to it. You won't have to turn there. I'll read it out to you. God says to his people at that time, he says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors. When? When I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. So it won't be like that Sinai, that Moses, under Moses in the wilderness covenant. Because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness. And remember their sins no more. You see that? Forgiveness of sins. And look what we have here in in verse 28. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You see, I think what Jesus is saying is this moment that's about to happen tomorrow is that promise about to happen. That covenant is going to get made. And it's going to be a covenant of forgiveness of sins. It's going to be a covenant of, I will be your God and you will be my people. It's going to be a covenant of, I'm going to put my spirit and write my laws on your heart. It's going to be a new exodus from the master sin. It's going to be a new Passover, a protection from judgment. It's going to be a display of God's power. It's going to be a triumph over the enemies of sin and death, and all those who oppose the people of God at the end of the day. It's going to be faithfulness to promises. It's going to be the formation of a new people. And it's going to be the creation of this new covenant. See, the old was do this and live. The new is Jesus did this. Live. You see, the idea that God is not about keeping rules is not quite right. The idea that God is not about us being super obedient is not quite right. Why wouldn't we want to be obedient to God? Why wouldn't we want to keep his great rules? But the difference is, somebody has done it. Jesus has been obedient. Jesus has kept all the rules, if we, can, if we put it that way. The old were curses for disobedience. The new is the curse has fallen on Jesus. The old gave blessings for obedience. 
the new is Jesus has won the blessings of eternal life. The old had sacrifices that reminded of sin. That's what Hebrews teaches us. The sins, the sacrifices of the bulls and the goats, they didn't take away sin. They were a constant reminder of sin. The new has a sacrifice that removes sin. So Jesus is saying here in this moment, this is a big moment in the Bible, by the way. This is a really big moment. I'm not, this is, we're only scratching the surface. This is like we're racing through. Spend a year thinking about this. That would be good for you. Now the thing is, you see, it, it can be easy to get caught up in the mechanics of this. right? How does this work? Okay, sacrifice, you know, me living, uh, me obedience, uh, curses for disobedience, etc. But let's not miss that forgiveness of sins is subordinate. Forgiveness of sins is not the end goal. Knowing God is the goal of forgiveness of sins. I will be their God, they will be my people. Each one will know God. Here is the prize of Christianity. This is the treasure. Here is what we have to offer. God. Enjoy. This is what changes your Monday. This is what changes all your other relationships. This is what changes your daily work. This is what changes your relationship with yourself and your identity. I belong to God. God is my God. I am his child. This changes how you relate to your spouse, how you relate to your kids. This is your Monday application. Now just as we come to a land, you say, what about me? There's a thing out there. What about me? Well, if you are not yet believing in Jesus, you are operating under the old way. You will stand on your own after you die, God has told us, at the judgment, and you will give an account for your life and what you did with yourself. You will give account for all of your thoughts, you will give an account for all of your words. You will give an account for all of your deeds. And anybody that transgresses one of the laws is a breaker of the whole. The standard is love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, all of your strength. Or as Paul puts it in Romans, we are to honour and give thanks to God. All glory to him. That is one way. 
But if you know yourself, you will be grateful for the offer. Now check out this little word. It's one word. It's in verse 28. It starts with M. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. The Bible says, whoever will believe in him will have eternal life. The offer is for you. You might say, I'm beyond the pale. I can't be rescued. I've gone too far. Jesus is hanging on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus died for people who killed him. The offer is for you. Yes, you. All of your sins can be forgiven. (coughs) But how do I get into this? How do I have a part of it, right? That's got to be key. Look what Jesus says. I think what's happening with these symbols where he says, take and eat. And what we're going to do this now ourselves is, it's a picture of faith. It's a picture of receiving. You see, it's not a new work that we do. The taking and eating is a receiving by faith. It's a participating in this new covenant. It's a participating in Jesus. Let Jesus be mine. It's a saying, goodbye to Egypt. You turn your back on sin. It's a yes to Jesus. It's a goodbye to idols. It's a let Jesus be mine. And faith receives the gift. So you receive it. Receive the offer of Jesus' body broken for you and his blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. And for us believers here, we remember 